Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 9. We're going backwards. Did I hear a chuckle? And verse 1, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we are going to, I wanted to read the whole portion because it is one paragraph and should be read together, even though it starts all the way back in chapter 9. So don't feel like you're going backwards. You're not really. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we worship you together this morning. We take comfort in you. You are worthy of all thanks. You are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of our lives. We worship you and we give you honor. And we take strength in who you are. That uh, you are unchanging. And that is so different from our circumstances. Where sometimes our circumstances can be great and we can forget about you. Or sometimes our circumstances can be terrible and we can forget about you. But so often... We look to our circumstances, and they shift, and they change, and they give us no hope. We find hope in you. We find hope in your word and how you communicate yourself to us about what is true and right and good, about who you are and who we are and how we can know you. We take comfort in your word. We take comfort in your character. We take comfort in you as you've revealed yourself to be. And Father, this morning as we turn to our time together in your word, I pray that you would be at work by your spirit in our hearts, in our minds, that we would be focused upon you, that as a result of this time we would lift you up. We would adore you. We would praise you. And we would go out of here with your name on our lips. So we ask that you would work 
even now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage that we've been looking at, Romans chapter 9, that we will not go back to today, uh, the passage that we've been looking at has made a very strong argument, and I have made a strong argument from Romans chapter 9 about God's sovereignty, about Him being over all things, not just positionally higher than all things, not just uh, over all things in, in the sense that He might delegate other things to uh, to different uh, authorities or whatnot, but have made the argument that God is sovereign over all things in that He reigns intimately in every detail, right down to and including the heart of man. And I've made the argument that that is what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9, that he works even on that level, right down to the finest detail inside a person's heart, inside a person's will, inside a person's character. And in light of that, we run across these words in chapter 10 and verse 1, where he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And it's interesting as I read through various commentaries and, and uh, looked into what other scholars have said and in a normal part of preparation, I want to uh, include other people in my study, etc. And so as I read them, again and again, the comment was made that the strong sovereignty of God in the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9 results in prayer in chapter 10 and verse 1. And how for many that seems like a difficulty. For many that seems like a hard thing that if God is sovereign, why pray? In fact, just in the last few weeks, I've had several people come to me with that same question. If God is sovereign in the way that I believe Romans 9 is arguing and in the way that I have presented to you, if He is sovereign right down to the finest detail, right down to the salvation of sinners, if He is sovereign in that way, then why pray? Why bother? If God has already determined what will be, then why pray? If He has already chosen who will be saved, then why bother to pray? Or put it another way, does believing in God's absolute sovereignty in election and salvation preclude or diminish the impulse to pray for the lost? That's the question. Does believing in God's absolute sovereignty over all events and people demotivate prayer? And so it was interesting to me to read the commentaries and read how these scholars observe the same thing here, that we have just gone from very strong language about God's sovereignty. Now in 10.1, what does he do? He expresses his own heart's desire, his earnest prayer for the lost. He wants them to be saved. He prays for them to be saved. Far from him being discouraged to pray by this strong doctrine of sovereignty that he's just taught. Instead, he is encouraged to pray. He, he pours out his heart's desire, his prayer for them, that they would be saved. 
that there's a, a, a quick transition, there's a, a close logical connection, there's a close even emotional connection between what's being argued in chapter 9 and what we read about in chapter 10. There is no disconnect that they are actually very closely related. And so, as I said, I've been asked that question a few times in the past couple of weeks. How can that be? If God already knows, if God has already planned, if He's already determined, why pray? Why even pray? Well, what I want to look at today is prayer and how it relates to God's sovereignty. How do we think about prayer in light of God's sovereignty? And so I've got a few points there in your outline. It's not a normal-looking outline. And I've tried to express this uh, off the cuff to people. I thought it would be better to, to put it together in an organized fashion and try and work from beginning to end on how we understand prayer in light of a sovereign God. Point number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And I think the argument that we've looked at from Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9, you've got to jump through some hoops to come to a conclusion other than that God is sovereign right down to the detail of lives in Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9. And so I won't spend too much time developing that idea, but I will point out a couple of other verses, and, then, and it could be many, many, many. But a couple of other verses that summarize it well. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. Psalm 115 and verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. All that He pleases. Not a good portion of what He pleases. Not what He pleases except for He does all that He pleases. The hairs on your head are numbered. That doesn't just show that God's able to count really well or He's able to retain a lot of figures in His head. It's determining as when a sparrow falls and not one of them falls to the ground apart from Him. That when you go out hunting and you shoot and you hit one and you shoot and you miss, God was sovereign in that. That you hit one and that you missed because not a one falls to, ground, to the ground apart from Him. God is sovereign. He's absolutely, in the details, sovereign and in control. I won't argue that anymore. I've already done so for months already. Secondly, God is immutable. In other words, God, God is unchangeable. He doesn't change. And again, I could spell this out in much greater detail, but I think probably you already believe that. And uh, Malachi 3.6 certainly makes it clear, I, the Lord, do not change. Pretty straightforward. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God is immutable which means a couple of things in regard to sovereignty and prayer. Prayer does not change God's mind. Prayer does not change God's mind. One man said, if you believe you can change the mind of God through prayer, I sure hope you're using discretion. And I appreciate that. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man 
that he should change his mind. James 1.17, God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change. He does not change his mind. And I think an illustration might be helpful here in, in demonstrating that prayer does not change God's mind. If we bring it right down to a family with a young child, a toddler, and the toddler gives you suggestions for what ought to be for breakfast, right? Well, the parent better make that decision. It won't go well if the toddler gets his way. It'll, it'll be, you know, chocolate chips or something. I don't know what it will be, but, but it won't be a good decision because the parent knows what is best. The parent has made up his mind, her mind. This is what's best. This is what we should do. We're not going to take the suggestion of, hey, let's have you know, pie for breakfast or whatever from the toddler. <laughs> Some of you are feeling guilty because you had pie for breakfast. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to throw anybody under the bus, not by name anyway. That's kind of what the distinction is like. Yeah, we, we, we let the toddler say what the toddler wants to say. The parent knows what's best. The parent knows what's best. God does not change his mind. He's, he's not man that he should lie. He's not son of man that he should change his mind. Secondly, prayer does not change God's will. Psalm 33.10, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That means he has a counsel, which means plans. And they stand. They do not change. They stand and last forever. They are unchanging. Psalm 19, or excuse me, Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God's will stands. It will not be changed. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God's will does not change as a result of our prayers. God's will does not change as a result of anything. He knows what is best. His purpose is from old, and it is the purpose that should stand. It is the purpose that will stand. He not only knows the beginning from the end, He declares the end from the beginning. It's His decision. It's His decision. Imagine you're a, a family with young kids. I, I relate to families with young kids because, did you know I've had, we've had young kids for 21 years? So I think about it a lot. <laughs> Imagine you're a young family with young kids and you're, you're driving to Southern California. Now, there are two things in Southern California that, you know, that really matter. The first one is Disneyland, of course. Well, the second one is, is Grandma's house, Okay. All right, so as you're driving to Southern California, your kids recognize, hey, you're on the way, you're going through Bishop, you know, as you pass by Schott's Bakery, you know, and, and, you're, and you're with lunch there and you're on your way down, they realize, wait a minute, we're on our way to Southern California. What do they want? What do they start begging for? 
let's go to Disneyland. Let's go to Disneyland. That would be so great. It's the right time of year or whatever. Let's go. Let's get away. Let's go to Disneyland. And they begin to ask you. They begin to beg you. Let's go to Disneyland. Do, do you mind? Does it bother you that they beg you to go to Disneyland while you're driving down there? Probably not the first, first 43 times. Maybe 44 it'll get old. I don't know. But it doesn't bother you that they're asking you that. And that's a good thing. And they're excited. And they want to go to Disneyland, right? But, but you're driving down there as the parent... And you know why you're going to Southern California. And you have a good reason for doing so. And it is not to see Disneyland. It's because, it's because Grandma is going to pass away soon. And this will likely be the kid's last chance to see her. This will be likely the chance, our last chance as a family to be together with Grandma. And so we know, the parent knows, who cares about Disneyland? Let's see Grandma. They can ask one million times to go to Disneyland. The parent knows what is best. The parent knows what is best, regardless of what the children may think. And so, of course, you choose to go see Grandma. You're not going to be dissuaded, dissuaded from that. God knows what is best. He has determined to do that. We don't know what is best. We're like the kids in the back seat. Hey, let's go to Disneyland. The best thing in the world about Southern California is Disneyland. No. Grandma's there. Grandma's there. God knows what is best. He's determined to do that regardless of input, regardless of begging from us. Does that mean we should not beg? Does that mean that our input is unwelcome? Not at all. Not at all. That should be a very comforting thing, by the way, that God knows what is best. And he will accomplish it. If I could talk him out of doing what's best into doing what's second best because I really am convinced that that is best, that would be a very frightening place to live. Shall God's mind and will be determined by the short-sighted and sinful pleadings of human beings or by his all-wise and good counsel? God is unchanging. He doesn't change his mind and he doesn't change his will. Thirdly, God commands us to pray. And being in a church on a Sunday morning, I don't think I have to build this argument too much. First Thessalonians 5.17 alone, pray without ceasing. God wants us to pray. He tells us to pray. He tells us to bring our needs to Him. And in fact, I was talking with a brother yesterday about this. John 17 tells us that Jesus... God himself in the flesh, Yahweh himself prayed. He prayed. The one who determined the end from the beginning, the one who knew all things, the one who was the Son of God in the flesh prayed. God commands us to pray. And my argument is there is nothing inconsistent in that. It may be one of the most powerful things that we can do. Pray. Beseech the throne of heaven. It's powerful. And of course, we all experience those moments when we say, well, all, all that's left to do is pray. Right? All I can do is pray. I've tried the stuff that's really powerful. <laughs> Doing things and you know, calling people or, or whatever. I, I, and all I've got left is prayer, right? As if that's my last option. It's the weakest thing I can do, but it's the only thing left to me, so I guess that's... And we all recognize that's absurd. 
That's just absurd. What could be more powerful than coming into the presence of God Almighty, who has all power to, to, to do what He wills, and to ask Him? To ask Him what could be more powerful than that. All we have left is to enter the throne room of Almighty God and beseech His gracious work in our time of need. That, that, that's all I have left? That's all I need. That's all I need. So we are commanded to pray. There is nothing inconsistent between the fact that God has made up His mind, God is sovereignly in control to accomplish what He's going to accomplish. There's nothing inconsistent with that notion and me praying. Exhibit A would be Paul in 10.1 praying. The reason that question comes to mind is because of point number four, the question of what is prayer? What exactly is prayer? It's been suggested to me that if, if prayer can't change God's mind, then we would have no motivation to pray. That's been suggested to me two or three uh, different times in, re- in relation to Romans 9 and the things that we've been talking about here. And so the question for us is, does seeing God as absolutely sovereign remove our impulse to pray? Does it demotivate us from praying? So that because God is in control of all things, therefore I don't want to go to Him anymore. I feel no desire to go to Him anymore. And I think the the way to answer that is to talk about what is prayer. Prayer is submitting my will to God's sovereign will. Prayer is me coming to Him because He is God and submitting my will to His will. His will is more powerful than mine. His will is more knowledgeable than mine. He's better informed. I can barely see past the end of my nose. And He knows all things. His will is perfect and without sin, and mine is wrapped up with sin. So when I pray, I'm coming to God and submitting my will to His. Prayer alters my heart and my will, not His heart and not His will. Prayer is an expression of humility and submission. When we come to Him, we do so because He is in charge of all things. He's the one we should go to. He's the one whose will we should seek. He's the one with whom we leave our requests because He has the power to do it. Why would I go to someone else? Why would I go somewhere else? I'm motivated by the fact that He is over all things. He is almighty. I'm motivated to come to Him. Prayer is coming to God, submitting my requests to His judgment. Why do we say, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why do we say that? It's because we recognize His will is, is better and greater. We are submitting our requests to His judgment. Beyond that, we are bowing to His authority. When we come in, we submit the request. We submit to what He wants. 
Because he has authority to do it. He's in that position. I'm not. And no one else is. And so I submit that to him. I'm at the same time committing my way to him. Remembering who he is. How he's communicated himself to us in his word. Who he says he is. Remembering who he is. And committing my way to him. And then leaving the results in his hands. Here's my situation. This is what I think would be best. Please do this. I think it's best. And then we leave it. Sometimes when you're praying about something you really, really care about, the hardest thing to do is say amen at the end of your sentence, at the end of your prayer. To close the, close the book on it. To, to be done and, and leave it in his hands and step back and take your hands off of it. Sometimes I feel like when I'm praying, at least I've still got my, my hands in the mix. I'm still kind of controlling things or shaping things. Or if I'll pray it just right or if I'll word it just right or if I'll you know, pray strongly enough or something, then God will do what I want. And finally, at the end of the prayer, I have to, I have to let go and realize His will is supreme. I'm going to say amen and I'm going to step away. I have left that with Him with the sovereign God to accomplish His purposes according to what He knows is right and good and best for me and glorifying to Him and I leave it. I step away. The assumption that that a reason to pray is to change God's mind I think shows a basic misunderstanding of what prayer is. Prayer is a humble coming to Him in submission to Him. Do we pray in order to Get God to do what we want? Is that why we pray? Is He a genie in a bottle? He's, he's a really powerful being who's like a friend of mine that I can kind of twist His arm to do what I want to do. Of course we don't think that about God. Are we, are we coming to Him to get Him to do our will? Or are we coming to the Creator God of the universe in submission to Him? To Him who declares the end from the beginning who does all that He pleases, who accomplishes all He purposes, whose counsel stands forever, who holds the heart of kings in His hand like a trickle of water and turns it wherever He will. That's the God we're coming to. That's what we're doing in prayer. We're coming before that God. Who are we really talking to when we come to God in prayer? Are we placing an order? Or are we submitting a request? Prayer is me humbly coming before God with my need, submitting that request to Him and to His judgment, being changed in my own heart as I do so, and then leaving the request with Him. I come away changed in heart, changed in attitude, my values and my will having been shaped by my time with Him. And then I go away with the request left in His perfect, all-powerful hands. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. Fifthly, God hears and answers prayer. He hears and answers prayer. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: the Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. He hears our prayer. John fourteen thirteen. Through 14, 
Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He hears prayer and he answers prayer. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you. He listens and he hears prayer. Well, that raises questions in our mind. Well, if he's sovereign God, if he's already determined all things, if he's decided what is good and best because he knows what is good and best and he's going to accomplish it, and he tells me to pray, why does he tell me to pray? And how can he answer prayer? Well, that's because prayer partners us with God. One pastor said it this way, prayer does not change God, but prayer changes things because God changes things. Prayer petitions God and God changes hearts through prayer. James said in James 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. I think a biblical example of this might be in order of how we respond to God's sovereignty with prayer and how those two things work together. Before we turn to, uh, I don't know, if you can turn there if you want. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. So while you're turning there, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. God tells us to pray. God tells us He answers prayer. And the Bible tells us that God is absolutely sovereign and He has fixed what He will do. How do those things work together? Well, the answer is that He has not only ordained what will happen, but He has ordained the means by which it will happen. Meaning, He has also ordained to use prayer for the purpose of accomplishing His end result. So, for example... When you pray for a lost loved one and you pray for a month and you pray for a year and you pray for a decade, you are being changed as well. God intended for you to mature and be changed and so He ordained that you would also pray. And as you pray, He changes you. So he is accomplishing the end, the goal, the purpose, which is your sanctification as you pray. And so he is using that as a means to that end. And I remember in relation to that same example, I remember being told early on in my Christian life that, that no one ever came to faith in Christ apart from someone praying for him. And I agree with that. God uses the your prayer, you who have been praying for a decade or more, He uses your prayer to bring that person to faith in Christ. That your prayer, your intercession on His behalf was one of the means He ordained. Just like He also ordained that someone come and share the gospel with them. Just like He ordained that they have a Bible or that they listened to, you know, Christian radio one time, or whatever it is. He ordained all of those things which were all means, all instruments to be used to accomplish the final goal of that person coming to faith in Christ. He doesn't have to do it unilaterally. 
He doesn't have to do it with no other assistance. Not, and assistance sounds like you're contributing. That's not what I mean. He, he doesn't have to do it all by himself with no means, as in you're by yourself in the middle of the desert and, and, and suddenly you get saved. That could happen. But more likely, he's going to use your neighbor sharing the gospel. More likely, he's using people praying for you. He uses means to accomplish his ends. And prayer is one of those means. And as I said earlier, it is a powerful means. It is a powerful tool that we have at our disposal. And the fact that God has determined what will happen, what will be, and what he's going to do in the end doesn't mean I understand what that is. Doesn't mean I know what it is. Nor am I to bank on, well, God's got it, so I'll just let him do it and I don't need to pray. We have an example in Daniel chapter 9, a powerful example of this situation where Daniel, the prophet, he is in exile. And uh, you know the story of Daniel, and he was a a great prophet and he was a, a great man. Listen to Daniel 9. One through three. Let's do one through two first. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Pause there for a second. So, thinking of your history, they're in exile. Daniel is in exile. They've been kicked out of the land. They've been sent away. They've been sent to Babylon. And there's all this going on uh, there. And Daniel's involved in all that kind of stuff. But Daniel is doing a Bible study while he's in exile. And he ascertains from reading Jeremiah, who had been written. He had, uh, Jeremiah had written not long uh, before the, uh, the exile, right during the time when they were going into exile, etc. So the prophet Jeremiah had already written, God had already spoken through him. And this is what we read in uh, Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, and then again later in Jeremiah 29, 10. So again, Daniel's doing a Bible study, and this is what he reads. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So this is spoken in the land. It's spoken of the land, saying the people of Israel are going to be sent into captivity to serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And he continues in 29.10 of Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God had spoken to Jeremiah and said, I'm going to send the people out of the land of Israel. I'm going to exile them into Babylon. They'll be there for 70 years. At the conclusion of 70 years, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge those kings who have charge over you, the Chaldeans, Babylonians. I will judge them and I will restore you back to the land. And all this is going to take place in 70 years. Daniel read that. He did a Bible study. He read what God said would happen. And he's, he's checking his calendar. He's, he's reading it while they're in exile. 
and he ascertains what 70 years and, and he can, he can get a, you know, a, 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 an estimate of when that's going to happen. And he's in that context. And what does he do? Excellent. God's going to deliver us. I guess we can just, you know, do what we want. Um, we can go about our business. We better make all the money we can while we're here. Or does he say any of that? What does Daniel do? Verse three of, of Daniel nine. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Having ascertained from the word of God what God's specific will was, what he had said he would do and what he would not change from doing, having ascertained that, Daniel goes to prayer. He seeks God. He seeks God's mercy with fasting, with sackcloth. The revelation of the sovereignty of God in his own specific situation, far from causing him to throw up his hands in in, in apathy, causes him to pray, to beseech this God of heaven. Just like Romans chapter 9, Paul has been speaking so strongly and so powerfully about God's saving grace in the life of the elect, seeing that God has a certain will. He is sovereign even in that situation. And what does Paul do? His heart breaks and he prays. His heart breaks and he prays. Daniel responds in prayer. Jonah, by the way, in Jonah chapter 2, responds to the sovereignty of God in prayer. Paul responds to the sovereignty of God in Romans chapter 9 by his prayer in Romans chapter 10. He doesn't become passive. He doesn't lean on, yeah, God's going to do it. I think this is the fear when, when someone hears uh, someone say, well, God is absolutely sovereign. He has an elect people. He will save those elect people. The fear is, well, that will cause me to kick my feet back and say, all right, I'm going to watch God do that. I'm not saying anything. He doesn't need me to say anything. He doesn't need me to share. He doesn't, he doesn't need me to do these things, so I'm not going to do any of it. When in fact, the Christian heart, when faced with the sovereignty of God who is over all things, who's going to save who he will save, and, and I don't know who that will be, drives the Christian to pray. God, you have all authority and power to save this person. Please save this person. I don't know God's mind. It would be wrong of me to presume that I know God's mind. That's not my sphere. That's not our sphere. Unless he's already revealed something to us in his word, we don't know his mind. And so we, 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 we seek his mind. We seek his heart and we ask for the salvation of this person. We ask for God to work in this situation. His sovereignty encourages us to come to him because he is the one with the strength to make it happen. He is the one who is all wise and knows whether it should happen. He's the one who's ultimately in control. Why would I go to someone else? Why would I want a God who's not that in control of the things? Fortunately, that's not what the Bible presents us as God. He is absolutely in control of all things. He has his foreordained plan and he has told us very little about what that will be. And so we seek him. And so we pray and we beseech him because he has the power to save that person. So where does prayer fit in with sovereignty? Perfectly. Perfectly. 
as long as I don't have the assumption that the only reason to pray would be to change God's mind. Where do you see that in Scripture? Where do you see that be the value? So much in Scripture, praying is about our submission to Him. And we ask God to do this thing because we don't know what His will is. And we submit humbly our will and our plan to Him to make His decision. Because we trust Him. Because we know that He's good. We know that He's trustworthy. We know that He has the power to accomplish His will and it will not be thwarted ever. And so I can pray for lost family members. I can pray for the lost around me. His sovereignty is actually a motivation to pray. It doesn't discourage me that I don't know God's mind. It doesn't discourage me that I don't understand what He's going to do in the future. That's no discouragement to me. I understand He is Almighty God. He is on the throne, and so I beseech Him. So we think about our current political climate. We, a couple of things come to mind in closing in how this applies to our current situation. Of course, it has the application that we've just talked about, about praying for the lost, because we don't know God's mind, but He has the power to accomplish all things, and so we beseech Him. We think about our political situation. A couple of other uh, things come to mind here. Uh, characteristics that should be noteworthy, should be evident in Christians during this time. First, only we have the deep-seated comfort that God is sovereign in this situation too. In this weird climate, as Patty referred to it, and I agree, in this weird situation, we have a, a bedrock comfort. I don't get it. God is still on the throne. And there's peace. And there's comfort in that. He didn't find out about it after the fact and is doing his best to bring something good out of it. Nor did he simply allow it to happen. It came to us, the political climate, the cultural decline, the, the pandemic came to us from his loving and good hand for the good of the church and that he would be glorified. But it has his fingerprints on it. That should be the characteristic number one evident of Christians is that we have a deep-seated peace, a comfort, and the second thing that should distinguish us from the world during this weird time is prayer. Is prayer. We are commanded to pray. We want to pray. And in prayer, we have access to the ear of the one who has all things in his hand, who has all authority. He could, he could do less than snap and COVID would be 100% gone. He could do less than snap and all restrictions regarding COVID could be gone. He could do less than snap and he could solve the weird political situation we find ourselves in. He has all power, all authority. And when I'm reminded of His power, when I'm in, reminded of His authority, when I'm reminded of His sovereignty, it causes me to go to Him and to plead with Him. And that should be something that is true of Christians during this time is a heart going to God bringing our circumstances to God because we trust Him with them. He is wise. He is powerful. And we submit them to Him. And I don't know what His will will be for COVID, for the, the political weirdness we find ourselves in, for our cultural decline. I don't know what the end is going to be. And so I make my requests 
I don't know what God's best is, so I make my requests confidently because he loves me. I'm his son. And I trust him that he does know what is best and will accomplish what is best for his people, for my own conformity to the image of his son and for his own glory. And so I can leave that with him. And in that time, I find that my heart is changed when I come to him in prayer. I find that my faith is increased. It doesn't matter what circumstances are doing. I know who God is. I got to talk to God. My faith is increased irrespective of circumstances around me. Our faith is increased. And we find more and more that He becomes the center of our desires. Even more than the preferred outcome to the request that we brought to Him. We desire Him even more than that. So we find ourselves in a strange time in our, in our land, a strange time in our world, in our own lives. And God really is sovereign. And we really do have access to Him as His children. Make your requests with boldness. We ought to be a people characterized by that. We ought to be a people with that kind of peace that our God is on the throne. He's calling the shots. And I get to go to Him. I have His ear. That should encourage us. And so in this, in this time, I don't know what stresses you out more uh, about our situation. We could, we could list things for quite a while that, that might uh, make the cut for a lot of people. I don't know what those things are. But for each of those situations, we need to have peace in, in, in Him. Recognizing who He really is in Scripture and recognizing that because we are in Christ, we have access to Him. We have acceptance with Him because of Christ. We have His righteousness applied to us. We have peace with Him. We get to be in His very presence. We are His children. And you can beg all day long to go to Disneyland. He may be taking us to Disneyland. I don't know. But we can ask. We can ask. And He is our Father. And He loves it when we ask. And if we're not going to Disneyland, He, he will teach us along the way. It's better to go to Grandma's. That's where we find ourselves. That's the God we have. That's the God we serve. That's the, the God of the Bible and how He relates to us and the, the joy and the peace that we have that we get to come into His presence. It ought to be characteristic of us. It ought to be on our faces so that we, though we uh, may be worried about this, we may struggle with that, we may not like this situation and that situation, we should have a peace at the core that our God, our Father, is in control. And I can trust Him. Let's pray. Father, these, these uh, times we find ourselves in are trying. We project into the future and uh, we, we're tempted to be frightened. We look around our culture, we look around at the world and it would be uh, looming large like the giants in the land and we seem like grasshoppers to them. 
That's what we're tempted with. That's what our circumstances would do to us. That's what, that's what keeping our eyes fixed on the things that go on in the news or the things that go on in the world around us, that's what the, those things would accomplish in our hearts. That we would shrink, 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 and our, our possibilities, our opportunities, our, our future would shrink and decline and diminish and wilt and mold. I pray that you would help us to turn our eyes instead to Almighty God. And we don't grow. We don't get bigger. We really are grasshoppers. But you are sovereign God over all things. You are almighty. You have all power. You have all wisdom. You know what is best, and you know what is best for us. And you tell us in your word, you work all things together for the good of your children to conform us to the image of your Son. You know where to take us, and you have all power and authority to take us there. And so we rest in you. We rest. And we pray. You have the power to bring change in our culture. You have the power to change hearts so that the things our culture values that are evil and destructive and contrary to your law and contrary to your person, you have the power to make those changes. And so we pray and ask that you would. You have the power to draw to yourself our lost loved ones. You have the power to work right in their hearts And so we ask that you would. We ask that you would save our dear ones who don't know you. Draw them to yourself. We come to you and we find encouragement that I don't have to pray hard enough. I don't have to pray loudly enough or word it in a special way so that I can somehow change your mind or change your will. I get to bring my requests of my puny, sinful brain, my sinful heart, short-sighted, and I get to bring those requests to you and I trust you and I value you more than I do even having my particular request granted. Father, I trust you. We trust you. And like Daniel, we want to respond to your sovereignty by falling on our faces before you and asking for your mercy. We plead with you. And Father, we rejoice that whatever happens in this world, whatever happens in these circumstances, whatever, whatever goes on around us, in Christ we are perfectly secure. This world will... Though it, though it fluctuates, though it is frightening at times, will not separate us from you. We rejoice in our peace with you, in our union with you. We rejoice in being your children. And we will rejoice for all eternity. And I pray that we would take that joy to other people, that we would pray for them and that we would share with them and that we would look for you to do your great work in drawing them to yourself, that we would beseech you that way, 
that we would submit ourselves to you that way, that we would submit ourselves as useful instruments to accomplish that purpose. Father, we rejoice in you and we rejoice in this time and we rejoice in the truth that you are unchanging despite this ever-shifting world. I am encouraged that I get to have peace with you through Jesus Christ, my Lord, in whose name I pray. Amen. I'm going to uh, read a closing scripture for us in a moment. And uh, after I do that, you're going to be dismissed. If you want to come forward and pray with someone, there'll be a family up front who would love to pray with you and bring your requests together before our sovereign God. This is what Paul had said back in Romans chapter 8. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.